So for the, the past three weeks, we've been looking at John chapter 5. Two weeks ago, we kind of looked at verses 1 through 19, seeing Jesus heal a man who was an invalid for 38 years. Um, and this was an incredible moment in time, a miraculous story of a man who was uh, disabled of some sort, and Jesus simply speaks, and this man uh, is healed. Jesus says, get up, take up your bed, and walk, and the man does. It says immediately he does. So this is a truly remarkable time. Um, but that truly remarkable moment was quickly overshadowed by the storms of religiosity. Right? So we saw in verse 9, the latter part of verse 9, that Jesus healed this man by his word, but he did so on the Sabbath. And so the man is carrying his bed on the day of rest. And this um, baffled and frustrated the religious leaders. Um, not according to the scriptures, but according to their traditions, this would have been a serious offense. And so the fact that Jesus healed this man, that he worked on the Sabbath, eventually led to the Jews persecuting Jesus. And in the face of persecution, Jesus doesn't back down. Um, rather, he, he kind of revamps things. Rather than debate the religious leaders on whether or not uh, what he did was work, Jesus justifies his actions uh, by alluding to his divine uh, sonship, his divine nature, the fact that he is God. So Jesus references the Jews' understanding that God um, their understanding of how God interacts with the Sabbath. And so Jesus is saying, okay, I know that you know, I know that you understand that God works on the Sabbath. Um, well, my father is working until now, and so therefore I am working until now. And so in a nutshell, the religious leaders understood that God was the Lord over the Sabbath. And so on this day of rest, he's still holding all things together, working sovereignly because he is God. And, and so he, he knows that they understand that. They, he knows, or they know that the Lord is the Lord of the Sabbath. But what they didn't understand and what Jesus is trying to show them is that the Lord over the Sabbath is himself and he's standing right before them. And so for the past two weeks, we've seen that in response to Jesus being persecuted for his work on the Sabbath, he's begun to explain his divine and exclusive and personal relationship with the Father, which is highlighting, um, magnifying his divine nature, that he is God. And so Jesus can work on the Sabbath because the Father works on the Sabbath. The Son and the Father are one. Whatever the Father does, the Son does. And that's what we've been looking at and wrestling through for the past several weeks. And Jesus here makes some very remarkable claims, some claims that kind of leave you raising your eyebrows. And my fear is that in going slow through this, some of us may have had thoughts of skepticism. Right? So if you haven't read this passage all the way through and you haven't seen the passage that we're going to be looking at today, then I think there's a legitimate temptation to ask the question, how do we know that what Jesus is saying is true? How can we bank on this? How can we rely on this? And so how do we really know that what Jesus is saying here is true? How do we really know that Jesus is God? And so either one you yourself are a skeptic, or you have a temptation to have skeptical thoughts, or two, you know somebody who is a skeptic. Um, 
And so either you or someone you know seriously struggles with doubt. You constantly or periodically struggle with the question, how do we really know that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life? How do we know that that is true? So with so many different religions that are out there, I had this conversation with somebody this week, with all of these religions out there, how do we know that Jesus is the only way to eternal life? How do we know that what he says here is true? Well, hopefully our passage here today helps solidify the reliability, the dependability of Jesus's claims. And so we live in a time where um, all types of information, whether that be good or bad, is easily acceptable, right, or accessible. Um, and so if you get on any type of social media platform, whether that be Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, you're going to hear some type of opinion about some type of uh, uh, situation. So what's dangerous with that is that no matter whether that information is true or not, we can conveniently share or promote or validate information by simply clicking a button. And so I can't tell you how many times I've seen somebody passionately or angrily share a quote or a statistic or a meme or something that comes from fake news, as Donald Trump would say, like the, the site that they're sharing is not true, and it would say it on the website if they did digging, um, but they're so frustrated because of the information that they're reading um, is saying. And so without any research, we can see a post, accept it as true, and then share it with the world. And so with that, I think practically we have to constantly remind ourselves that it's vital that we check the facts before we um, accept something is true. And so we don't want to accept a message simply because it sounds good. And we don't want to simply reject a message because it sounds bad. And we don't want to accept a message because we simply like the messenger. And we don't want to reject a message because we don't like the messenger. We need to check the facts, check to see if what we are hearing is true and what we are hearing is reliable. And so in school, what do you always have to do at the end of your paper? What do you have to put? Oh, a works cited page, a bibliography. You, the, I remember so many times I would write in my paper a statement and then my teacher would say, how do you know that's true? Like, where did you get that? What's your source? Put that there. And so they constantly instill that in your minds you have to put your sources at the end of your paper. You need a big bibliography, a works cited, reference sheet, whatever the terminology is. Well, I think today we're going to begin to study Jesus' works cited page, in a sense, his, his reference sheet, his bibliography. We're looking at the supporting evidence to the claims that Jesus has made. How do we know that Jesus truly is who he says he is? Here's the proof. Here's the facts that back up what he's Saying So Christianity is a religion that's based on faith, but faith is not blindfully um, hoping um, in the illogical. Like we can't make sense of what we're hearing and so we're just going to accept it by faith. No, there's so much evidence to what we're seeing here that we can uh, lean on and be confident in what we see. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so as Christians, we're confident that Jesus is who he says he is. That's not blind. Like, we don't just cross our fingers and hope that what he 
is saying is true. We don't accept it as true because that's what we were taught as kids. We accept it as true because it's true. And so therefore we place our faith and our trust in him and in him alone for eternal life because what he is saying is true. We are confident that his word is true and that his blood is sufficient to cover our sins and to give us eternal life. It's true and we bank on it. And we'll see that today. So there's a theme of witnesses that run all throughout the Gospel of John. And a witness is essential in establishing any claim to be factual. Um, That would have been a slide, so if you want to write that down. A witness is essential in establishing any claim to be factual. So uh, an illustration. If I said, I went to the Florida State game yesterday, and Florida State won 55-2, to like, you... You would say, okay, Ryan seems like a trustworthy guy, right? Like, I'm just going to accept his word. No, like, we need to check the facts. And so if I pulled out my ticket and showed you that I went to the Florida State game, and then you saw I'm a little sunburned, you're like, okay, he's got a farmer's tan. He must have went. And then you get on ESPN, and then it's the score is different. Like, you'll begin to quickly figure out as you begin to evaluate things, like, no, 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 no. He may have went to the game, but Florida State didn't win 55-2. to They lost 31-36, to right? You would quickly begin to understand that the witnesses are telling a different story. Um, a witness is essential in establishing any claim to be factual. So if I said I'm better at Matt Mormon than basketball, and Thomas Crabtree's like, yeah, he is. I, I saw him. And Billy's like, yeah, I saw him dunk on him, even when there's no dunking sign in the Jim, right? You would begin to accept that claim to be factual. So what we find in our passage today is after a long and very carefully drawn out explanation of who he is and what he's come to do, Jesus calls upon his witnesses. He's standing before the Jews. You see this courtroom scene almost. He's standing before the Jews and he says, you don't believe me. You don't believe these claims that I'm giving you. Well, here's the proof. Here's the witnesses. Jesus has made bold claims, yes. How do we know that they're true? And how do we know that they're reliable? We know that Jesus' claims are true and reliable because of the proof that he gives us in our passage today. And so Jesus is the Son of God. To summarize what he's been teaching, that he is the Son of God, the eternal ruler over God, which means that eternal life is solely found in him alone through belief and faith in him alone. And so we know that that is true because of our passage today. So let's dive into our passage today. We're going to divide, as I previously said, um, this um, text into two sections. So we'll finish uh, John chapter 5 next week and then begin John chapter 6 on the 15th. Um, So, yeah, let's go ahead and read verses 30 through 40. He says this, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from men, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given to me, that has given to me to accomplish, 
the very work that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and that it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So the first thing that I want us to see here in this text or take note of is the transition in language. And so Jesus has gone from speaking about himself in third person to now speaking about himself in first person. So up until verse 30, Jesus has said things like, if you look in your Bibles to verse 19, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Go down to verse 20 for the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Skip down to verse 22, for the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. But now in verse 30, what does he say? He says, I can do nothing on my or on my own as I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So if there was any doubt about who Jesus was speaking about in verses 19 through 29, there's no doubt now. Jesus is undoubtedly point blank claiming that he is the Son of God. He is the one who is one with the Father. He, Jesus, in the Father's relationship is one of perfect union and submission. It's Jesus that he's talking about. If there was any confusion up until this point, there is no confusion now. He is speaking about himself. Everything that Jesus says and does is a perfect reflection of his perfect obedience to the Father. Jesus seeks not his own will, but the will of the one who sent him. So for the past 13 verses, Jesus has been bearing witness about himself, speaking about himself. He has claimed that he is the Son of God, the one who possesses the power and authority to give eternal life. But the skeptic in all of us at some point says, yeah, well, sure, how does Jesus, um, how do we know that what Jesus says is true, right? That we've um, reiterated that question. Can't anybody make these claims? What makes Jesus' claims uh, trustworthy? Uh, and so Jesus here anticipates and answers that question in the next verse. And so again, I think, I've said this the past several weeks, this is kind of the fork in the road passage, I think, for us. Either Jesus, either his claims are false and blasphemous and worthy of death, um, or his claims are true, which should lead all people to crowning him as Lord, uh, honoring him, worshiping him, submitting to him as Lord. There's no middle ground. There's either he's a fool we stone him, kill him, crucify him, or he's Lord over all and we crown him as Lord. There's no middle ground. So what Jesus does in verse 31 is he acknowledges this skepticism or rebuttal and says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. So key word there is if, right? So this verse is not saying that Jesus is capable of being false as we'll later see, Jesus is the way, the truth, right? Truth resides in him. He is the truth and the life. And in, later, in a later exchange in chapter 8 with the Pharisees, Jesus says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. 
for I know where I came from and where I am going. So Jesus is not saying that he's capable of speaking falsehood. Um, there's not even a possibility of him being re- uh, unreliable. Rather, like I think what we see is like a father would get down on his knee and look eye to eye and be on the same level as his son and speaking to him. I think Jesus is doing that with the Pharisees here. Um, he's getting on their level and saying what he's saying here in verse 31. He's keeping with the Old Testament teachings regarding multiple witnesses. So Deuteronomy 17.6, jot that down in your notes and you can go back to it later. I'm going to read it. I'm going to give you three, uh, three different passages. So Deuteronomy 17.6, Deuteronomy 19.15, and Numbers 35.30. All of those speak to um, the importance of having multiple witnesses. So look at Deuteronomy 17.6. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Deuteronomy 19.15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall, be, shall a charge be established. And then Numbers 35.30, if anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses, plural. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. So on three different occasions in the Old Testament, we see the importance of having a plurality of witnesses, two or three witnesses, in order for a charge against someone to be established as true, in order for it to be credible or reliable. So someone cannot be pro- uh, prosecuted on the basis of one witness. This isn't my word against your word. That, that doesn't stick in court in this case. You have to have more than one witness in order for a claim to be true. And so with that being uh, said, what's I think truly remarkable in what we see in chapter 5 is we're beginning to see a a transition in this exchange between Jesus and uh, the religious leaders at this point. Um, Because it, it seems like to begin with, Jesus is the defendant. Like he's the one being prosecuted. He's the one having to defend himself. So it has the feel that Jesus is on trial and he's having to give an answer to his um, claims and his actions. And so therefore he's giving witness to defend himself. But now through this exchange, things are beginning to change. Uh, These witnesses give testimony to the fact that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the Son of God. But now what we're going to see is that because this is true, these witnesses condemn the religious leaders. And so the the trial is, is beginning to reverse in a sense. Jesus is not the one guilty. The religious leaders are the ones guilty. We are the ones guilty. And so at the flip of a switch, Jesus goes from the one being prosecuted to the, one, to the prosecutor. Uh, the Jews go from the prosecutors to the ones being prosecuted, in a sense. And so with that in mind, and we'll see that transition later on, specifically next week, but with that in mind, Jesus says, there is another who bears witness about me. I think this is verse 32. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Jesus here is referencing back to his oneness with the Father. And so he's saying, the Father who sent me bears witness about me. There is another who bears witness about me. 
the Father. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. I know it's reliable. And so remember, Jesus has just explained that he's fully aware of the Father's will, and he therefore knows and speaks on behalf of the Father. And so whatever Jesus says is exactly what the Father has told him to say. And that means that Jesus knows that the testimony that the Father bears about him is true. And what Jesus then does throughout the rest of this passage is gives us three to five examples of the Father's witnesses or the Father's witness about the Son. So if you have a pen, you want to underline these in your Bible, let's look at these different witnesses really quick, and then we're going to expound on them. So the first witness that we see is John the Baptist. You see that in verse 33. You sent to John, and he bore witness to the truth. Uh, you go down to verse 36. You see Jesus' works being another witness. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me. Verse 37, you see the Father himself. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. You go down to verse 39, the scriptures, you search the scriptures. It is they that bear witness about me. And then verse 46, Moses. Um, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote uh, of me. So the reason why I say there's three to five witnesses, because depending on which commentator you read, they divide those witnesses up differently. So some commentators condense Moses into the scriptures. Um, and then others condense the witness of the scriptures into the Father's witness. So I, it, to my mind, it doesn't matter how you chop them up. Um, they, I think they all flow from the Father's witness, as what we just saw in verse 32. Um, and so do you and how you want to count them, three, four, or five, whatever's fine, because as you begin to dig into each of these witnesses, you'll see that they all flow out of the Father's witness. All five of these are the Father bearing witness about the Son. So it was the Father who sent John the Baptist to bear witness about Jesus. We're going to look at that in a minute in John chapter 1. The works that Jesus has done in verse 36 uh, were given to him by the Father. The scriptures are God's word. We see that in verse 38. Uh, Hebrews 1.1 says, God previously spoke to his people through the prophets, so through Moses, but now he has spoken to us by his Son, Jesus. So as you dig into these witnesses, it is the Father's witness about the Son manifested through each and every one of these witnesses individually. So um, what I would now like to do is look at each of these witnesses individually. So look at verses 33 through 35. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So let's first answer the question, who is John the Baptist, right? We've, we've looked at him fairly often. He's a, a very um, prominent character in the Gospel of John up until this point, apart from Jesus. He plays a very major role in this Gospel. And so we were first introduced to John in verse 6 of chapter 1. So just turn over a couple pages and look at this. Um, John chapter 1, verse 6. There in that verse, we learn that John the Baptist was a man sent from God to bear witness about the light so that all might believe through him. And so back when we studied these verses, we looked at what made John the Baptist's witness about God reliable. Um, so what makes his claims trustworthy? The first thing that we saw uh, that spoke to the reliability of John the Baptist's witness was the character of the one who sent him. So we saw that John the Baptist was a man sent from who? 
in John chapter 1, verse 6. Who sent John? God. That would have been a simple, uh, very church answer. If you're not paying attention and you got called on, God or Jesus, right? Um, so there was a man sent from God. So what makes his mes- uh, message trustworthy, reliable? Uh, the sender, the character of the one who sent him, God. God, the one who hates falsehood, the one who said, Thou shalt not bear false witness, sent John to bear witness about Christ. So if we believe that God is true and that he in him is no falsehood, then the very character of God should give us confidence that this message from John the Baptist is valid and trustworthy. So that is one point that tells us that his message is reliable. The second thing we saw is that the content of his message speaks to the reliability of his message. So if you think about this, if the message that John is proclaiming is not true, then it would be false. Um, He would be proclaiming falsehood. But the very heart of falsehood is to demean your neighbor in hopes to elevate yourself. So if I say that Andrew's beard is not that good, it's not as good as mine, I'm demeaning him in order to elevate myself. And, And so... A false witness proclaims a false message with the intention of hurting someone else or ruining their reputation in order to protect or benefit yourself. John the Baptist does the exact opposite of that, right? He downgrades himself in order to elevate someone else. And so there's zero self-interest in John the Baptist. His intentions were 100% to exalt Christ, to bear witness about the light so that all might believe through the light, Jesus. So in no way, shape, or form does John hurt or ruin the reputation of another. And so what does John gain from proclaiming this message? Nothing. He ultimately gets beheaded because of it, right? So he's either convinced of that which is true or he's a lunatic. He's a fool. So the message that John the Baptist is proclaiming is reliable, it's trustworthy, Uh, And we can trust it because of the character of the one who sent him, because of the character of God. And we can trust it because of the content of his message. He's exalting another and degrading himself in a sense. He must decrease so that another must increase. And then lastly, as we see in our passage today, John John the Baptist's message is trustworthy about Jesus. It's reliable because it's a message that many others are proclaiming as well. And so when John the Baptist steps down from the stage and bearing witness about Jesus, another steps up. So Jesus is saying, going back to our passage today, Jesus is saying to the religious leaders, you sent to John. You asked John the questions of who you are. Are you the Messiah? You're the one who asked that question. And he bore witness to the truth. He told you the truth about himself. He told you the truth about me. You sent to him. You asked these questions. So that would have been a reference back to John chapter 1, verse 19, immediately following this prologue. You remember this this exchange between the the priests and the Levites who came to John the Baptist, and they asked him those questions. Who are you? Um, and, And so during this time, Israel had gone hundreds of years without hearing from a prophet. And so John the Baptist comes. And he's talking like a prophet. He's looking like a prophet. He has a message that's similar to a prophet. And so this has sparked the curiosity of the religious leaders. Hey, is this the Messiah? So they send to him and ask these questions. Um, Are you the Messiah that we're waiting for? And John the Baptist 
confessed and confessed freely that he is not the Messiah. He's simply a forerunner, not the vehicle, but someone who came beforehand to prepare the way for the Messiah. He says, I'm simply a voice as Isaiah prophesies. I'm a voice that cries out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And so John the Baptist was the prophesied one who was sent by God to prepare the way for the Messiah. And so in John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist literally points the finger at Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. So John the Baptist, after being asked, Are you the Messiah? And he says, No, I'm coming to prepare the way for someone far greater than me. The next day, in front of everybody, points the finger and says, that's the guy. Behold, the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world. The one that I just told you about, that's him. So there should be no question for the religious leaders at this point who it is that John the Baptist was saying was the Messiah. So going back to Jesus' exchange in John chapter 5, we see Jesus saying, guys, you literally went to John with the question, who is the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? And he literally said, I'm the one that the Old Testament scriptures prophesied about, saying that I'm going to be the one preparing the way for the coming Messiah. And I literally pointed to the one that I said was the Messiah. So John the Baptist was the first witness to stay, take stage here. Uh, and Jesus is saying, you asked the question, he answered he told you I'm the Messiah, but you rejected him. Um, but what's interesting here is Jesus kind of Jordan shrugs off this witness of John the Baptist and is like, it, it's not that big of a deal for me. My divine nature does not depend upon the testimony of some man. My, my uh, divine nature, who I am, does not depend upon the message of John the Baptist. In verse 34, Jesus makes it clear that the reliability of his message doesn't depend on John the Baptist. It, Jesus doesn't mention John the Baptist's witness for his own gain, but for the benefit of his hearers. Look at this verse. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. And so if the Father is Jesus's witness, then what does Jesus profit from the witness of John the Baptist? He profits nothing. Jesus mentions John the Baptist for the eternal benefit of his hearers. And so as we saw last week, Jesus' desire for the people that are persecuting him, his desire for the people who are trying to kill him, is their salvation. So Jesus' example here, as mentioned last week, takes how we interact with our enemies a step further. So Jesus does not withhold an invitation uh, of salvation from the religious leaders who are seeking to kill him. His words have the strategic purpose of his persecutors being saved. That's his desire in sharing the witness of John the Baptist. So my wife and I talking this week of when people wrong you, when people hurt you, it's one thing to uh, repay no one for evil for evil. It's another thing to bless those who persecute you, right? It's another thing to, to pray for those who wrong you, those who hurt you. It's another thing to pray for their salvation. And so may our hearts not harden towards those who have wronged us or hurt us, 
Rather, may we long and pray for their salvation. And may we pray for opportunities to share the hope of the gospel with them so that they might be saved, just as Jesus has done here for us in our passage today. So John the Baptist was a man sent by God to bear witness about the light that all might be saved through him. And as Jesus puts it, he was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for for a while in his light. This burning and shining lamp analogy, I think, is a reference back to Psalm 132, verse 17. You can write that down. It says this, There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. So the purpose of John's shining was for the anointed one, the Christ, to be made visible in the midst of darkness. And Jesus then follows that up with the statement, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So here we see the second witness, and that's the witness of Jesus' works. The works that the Father gave him to accomplish, they bear witness to the fact that the Father has sent him. So his works, I think, include all of his ministry, especially the signs that he's done. And so John gives us, I think, seven different signs, seven different works laid out in these first, um, this first half of his gospel. So if you remember back to John chapter 2, we first see Jesus. Anybody know what that first sign was? Water to wine. Yeah. And so if you remember, wine symbolized joy during this time. So when the wine went out at the party, this would have been a shameful um, event. This would not have been a good thing. It would not have buffed, right? This is not a good thing. Um, And so Jesus turning the water into wine was buff is right, right? Bluff, not buff. Um, So Jesus turning the water into wine symbolizes Jesus being the giver of a supernatural joy that can never run out. And the second uh, sign that we see, Jesus healing the official son, that would symbolize Jesus' divine power to give and preserve life. And then we saw Jesus heal the invalid man in our passage this week, which tells us that Jesus is the saving power that this broken world needs. And then we see Jesus feed the 5,000, which tells us that Jesus is the one who can satisfy our deepest uh, hunger of the soul. And then Jesus, we see him walk on water, which tells us that Jesus possesses and exercises all authority over the laws of nature. And then we see the healing of the blind man, which tells us that Jesus can give sight both physically and spiritually. And then lastly, we see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, which tells us that he possesses divine authority over Death. He is the resurrection and the life. So these seven signs were intended to display, one, Jesus' deity, and two, inspire faith and belief in those um, who saw these works being done. And so the reality is, is you cannot honestly look at what Jesus has done and come to the logical conclusion that Jesus is simply a teacher or a prophet. It's illogical. All of these stories have details in them that cannot be explained away by chance or fabrication. When Jesus turned the water to wine, the servants who had no ties to Jesus filled the containers all the way up to the brim. So Jesus couldn't have gone out to his 
um, impala and grabbed like a strong drink, mixed it in with the water, and then created it that way. No, they're filled to the brim, and Jesus performs this miraculous miracle. And then in our passage this week, Jesus heals a man who is an invalid for 38 years. 38 years is an important detail, right? That means that this man would have been known and recognized by the people in this city, right? Okay, this guy's walking. I've seen him sitting for 38 years. Something's up. So Jesus didn't bring in a stunt devil from out of town and say, okay, this man's been uh, hurt for a while, and then I'm going to throw a cloak on him and he gets better. No, this, everybody knew this guy, and now somehow he's walking, carrying his mat on the Sabbath. So there's details in all of these stories that speak to, okay, you can't explain this away by chance. This is reliable. It's an act of God. So what Jesus did was truly miraculous, and it led to the raising of the eyebrows of the Jews. Lazarus, back in John chapter 3, a ruler of the Jews, a Pharisee, comes to Jesus at night and says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Lazarus, a Jew, the Jews, have seen Jesus doing these works, and they're saying, okay, something's up here. No, no regular human being can do what he is doing. Something is going on. So his works, Jesus' works, are bearing witness about himself. So no one can claim that the unbelief of the Jews is justified by a lack of evidence, right? So the Jews aren't just unaware of what's really going on here. Their unbelief is a fruit of a hardened heart, not a lack of evidence. So sin has a way of clouding judgment, right? So from an outside view, many of us not clouded by the haze of sinful desire, can see how illogical these religious leaders are being. It doesn't make sense. How could you be so dumb, right? How could you be so stupid? Like, this is point-blank clear what's going on. Well, I think the same is true of us today, right? Maybe not in this situation, but I think oftentimes sin has a way of clouding our judgment. And so things that outside of the haze of sinful desire, the deceitfulness of our heart, Things make sense, but our hearts, deceitful, lure us and entice us into sin. Like the Pharisees, we too are oftentimes clouded by the illogical persuasion of our sinful desire. Continue reading, look at verses 37 through 38. Jesus then says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So some commentators believe that the Father's witness can be found in passages like Matthew 3, where we see the Spirit of God descending upon Jesus and the Father saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So referencing to the baptism of Jesus, the Father bearing witness about the Son. This is my son, my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Or during the transfiguration where um, later on Peter, James, and John were on the mountain with Jesus and a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the clouds again said, this is, speaking about Jesus, my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so you see um, situations where 
the Father is bearing witness literally about the Son. But what's interesting here is that Jesus anticipates a potential rebuttal and turns it on their heads, in a sense. The Jews could have easily, easily asked the question, you're quoting the invisible God as your witness. Um, where's your proof for such a claim? And Jesus acknowledges the fact that they have never seen nor heard God. But he then says that the reason that they have never heard him is because they reject the one whom he sent. If they were simply to see Jesus for who he is, then they would also see and hear God himself. And we then see in verses 39 through 40, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And so I think this is beginning to be the the pinnacle of Jesus' argument here. Jesus turns his attention to the very thing his audience has given their life to, and that is the scriptures. So above all else, they, they would know, okay, the scriptures, that's, that's my jam. I, I know the scriptures day in, day out. I have my 15-minute de- devotion. I don't just have a 15-minute devotion. I have uh, a five-hour devotion. They devote their lives to the studying of the scriptures. They would have acknowledged the scriptures to be the highest authority. And so Jesus is telling them, You search the scriptures, the very thing that you've given your life to knowing, but you're missing the point of the scriptures. I think that's a terrifying thought. It's possible to study the Bible every single day and still miss the point of the Bible. The point of the Bible is to point us to Jesus, to teach us about Jesus. If you're going to go to the Bible to find more rules to follow, then you're no different than the religious leaders here. The point of the Bible is not behavior modification. The point of the Bible is not for us to learn more rules to follow. The point of the Bible is to point us to Jesus, the one that eternal life resides in. And so daily Bible reading does not always equate to Christian faithfulness. It's good. It's a discipline that we all need to have in our lives. But it it does not always equate to Christian faithfulness. If in our reading of Scripture we're missing Jesus and finding rules, then we've fallen in the same trap as the Jews here. We're refusing to come to Jesus for eternal life. We're refusing to, we're rejecting the very message of Scriptures. So from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, we see God's plan to redeem sinners like you and I through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Messiah that the Old Testament scriptures prophesied about and pointed to, um, he is our only hope. And so it may, be, it may sound redundant to always talk about the gospel each and every week, but we would be fools to trade the freedom from sin, the hope of the gospel, that is found in Jesus Christ that the scriptures are pointing to. It would be fools to uh, throw that aside for the chains of works-based righteousness, right? It would be foolish to abandon the gospel for the chains of um, what we see the religious leaders pursuing after. So the point of the Bible is to bear witness about Jesus. That's the point Jesus is making here, to tell us the grand story of redemption that is found in Christ alone. 
So part of your homework this week, Emily mentioned the importance of community groups, right? So if you're plugged into a community group, one thing I want you all to discuss this week is um, discuss different passages in the Old Testament that point to Jesus, right? So I want you to, to go back in your personal reading, uh, jot down some Old Testament passages, dig through the Old Testament, find some that are pointing to Jesus, um, test this claim of Jesus. Is this a reliable claim? Does the scripture point to Jesus? Is he the point of the Bible? Um, and I want you all to, to identify and discuss different passages in the Old Testament that bear witness to Jesus. That's one of your questions, community group leaders, that you don't have to come up with. I came up with it for you guys. You're welcome. Um, you're welcome. Um, so yeah, so Jesus is who he says he is. We can bank on it. We can rely on it. Um, he has countless witnesses bearing witness to himself. Kyle Bashir's wanted to, to entitle this sermon, The Jehovah's Witnesses. I, I thought it was good. Um, so there's countless witnesses claiming to, bearing witness to Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He is the one who is worthy of all honor, as we've seen. He is the one who will judge all. He is the one who will call people to life for this final judgment. And he will be the one who sends those to um, eternal damnation and the one who grants eternal life. Right? He is the one that life resides in. And the scary reality here is that the Jews are beginning to know and understand and see the truth, and yet their hearts are hardened and they're rejecting this truth. And so which are you? I think we have to ask the question. Do you reject this message? Do you reject Jesus or do you accept Jesus? Do you place all your eggs in that basket? Is he Lord of your life? Do you submit to him as Lord, trusting him with everything, or do you reject him as Lord? And that's something I've had to wrestle through this week. I, I had to really wrestle through that uh, yesterday morning. Just thinking through, okay, um, Jacob and I had a, a conversation on Friday morning um, that led me to just thinking through like very um, like dark thoughts. What if this happened in my life? What if that happened in my life? What if I lost this person in my family? What if I lost that person in my family? Like what, what if everything that my hope in life was found in was just ripped from me? Would I still believe and still worship and crown Jesus as Lord over all? And I, I, I had to be honest with God and say, I, I don't know. And so help me, right? And so if everything in our life was stripped from us, would we still believe this to be true, right? In the, the good times, it's easy to say, yeah, Jesus is Lord, praise him. But what about in the bad times, right? Is he still Lord and is he still our only hope? And if this message is true, then we have great hope in the midst of trials because we know that the Lord over all, the creator of all things, the one who gives life, came and suffered, laying his life down, dying an unjust death as we are beginning to see, being falsely persecuted, 
so that we may have life in him through belief. And so this is a trustworthy message. And so may we bank our lives on this message, putting all our eggs in that basket, trusting in him, giving him all honor. Let's pray, and then um, I'll give us uh, some clarity about um, how we'll shut down. Um, also, just want to reiterate, like, this is our, our first meeting here. Um, two weeks from now, September 15th, right? This is going to be our official launch date. Know that the enemy is going to attack you. Right? Satan hates the advancement of the gospel. He hates church planning. And so he's going to do everything in his power to deter you, um, to throw temptations at you, throw trials at you. Um, and so my prayer is that you will remain steadfast in the faith, put on the full armor of God, stand firm. Um, this is the importance of community. We don't want to dive into church planning alone in isolation. And so I'm praying for you all. I love you all. I'm thankful for you all. And know that there's going to be some serious spiritual warfare if there hasn't been already. And so just be aware. Um, but we don't go through that hopeless, right? The, the Jesus that we serve and that we're proclaiming is true. It's reliable. We can bank on it as we've seen in our passage today. Um, so let's joyfully, wholeheartedly pursue the advancement of the gospel through church planning. Thankful for you guys. Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we thank you. God, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here. God, I pray for their marriages, the ones who are married. God, those who are not, God, I pray for um, their walks with you. Pray for everyone's walk with you here. God, I pray that there's joy, that there's peace in walking with you. God, those who are going through trials, God, I pray that you comfort them. Holy Spirit, give them a joy that surpasses all understanding, a peace that surpasses all understanding. Um, God, through their trials, I pray that you are made much of. Um, God, I pray that we will be a people who um, are gospel-centered, who proclaim the hope of the gospel through our words and through our actions. Um, God, we are thankful for the gospel. And we thank you that you give us um, so much evidence supporting who you are. God, you did not have to reveal who you are to us, but you have, and we are thankful. And so, God, I pray that we study your word to know you more. Um, yeah, so it's through your son's name that we pray. Amen.